It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It is the Lockdown Bengals Podcast with your hosts, Joe Goodberry and Jake Lisko. Find us on Twitter at Joe Goodberry and at Jake underscore NFL. Please like, subscribe, and share as we try to grow this community and pump out daily Bengals content just for you. Welcome on in, Bengals fans, to another episode of the Lockdown Bengals podcast. Joe introduced us. We're going to jump right in. We have a lot of questions to get to in our weekend mailbag, but as always, we're going to start by just talking about some news, some other things going around around the league. The first big thing that we need to talk about today, Joe, as we go into this weekend is what is going on? With the defensive coordinator searches, a third candidate reportedly has turned down the Bengals. Todd Grantham is staying at Florida. Not a good look. Not a good look at all. And I think this is actually the first guy that was officially offered something and officially turned them down. Uh, Even though two others, what was it? It was Jack Del Rio and Dom Capers said no, no thanks to the Bengals, at least interviewing them or, you know, bringing them on to discuss things. So, Yes, this is the third defensive guy. We talked on other podcasts about some guys on the offensive side that have also sought out other jobs or turned them down for different positions. Uh, This is not a good look. This is not an ideal scenario. I think more than not a good look, I'm starting to be concerned. I think a lot of the fan base is starting to be concerned. The latest uh, defensive coordinator was hired last year was Paul Pascaloni for the Lions on February 7th, and that was also hiring a, a head coach from a Super Bowl team, so it made sense why they were late. But today being the 14th that we're recording, and uh, over the weekend we are now a full week past that point of last year. We have the scouting combine coming in two weeks. We have free agency in exactly a month. It is a scary time to be in, especially since they are, it seems to be they're exhausting all options and still being turned down for the job for someone choosing a a college position over one of 32 defensive coordinator positions in the NFL. And there are a lot of different reasons that, th- that this might be the case. One of them could be that he is one of the highest paid defensive coordinators in the college ranks. Maybe Mike Brown wasn't willing to pony up enough money to take him away from Florida. Maybe he was looking for a bit of a raise and maybe the raise wasn't quite good enough to move his family. There's that report that came out that said his family played a role. That could just be, you know, coach speak talking to the press, trying to justify things. It could be, you know, they look at the defense and they think, I don't want to coach this unit. I don't buy that argument very much. It's an NFL job. Yeah, it's an NFL job. You can make your you can make your imprint on that team. I don't see somebody turning down the Bengals for that reason. It could be something to do with Zach Taylor. It could be something to do with Mike Brown, the Bengals, the reputation certainly has been more difficult 
for the Bengals to attract quality coaches since Marvin Lewis left. So maybe some of that reputation Marvin Lewis had built around the Bengals organization, maybe people are a little bit more scared now that he's not around anymore. And I, that was one of our worst fear, fears, I think, for the last what, five years, uh, ever since we've really um, been banging the drum for it being time to move on from Marvin. I think collectively our, our fears were, well, what if things revert to pre-Marvin? And as time wore on, it was just, well, it doesn't matter. It's time to move on. But So we forgot about those a little bit. Uh, but now they're kind of coming back, and I'm remembering those discussions and those concerns that people had of looking down on the Bengals as a third-class organization in the NFL. And if that's true and if that's the case and they're going to struggle to find a defensive coordinator, man, I'm feeling worse and worse about this coaching staff and this team right now, and I, I don't think it's going to help projections. Now it may not mean anything. They may fall into the right guy who's the right coordinator, and that could still happen. But it's not going to help the perception going into the season, especially when you see projections and, oh, they, they're going to win this these many games. And not that that matters much, but it does help or hurt the fan expectations going into the year. And I think right now, if you polled fans, they wouldn't be feeling very good about this. Yeah, there's going to be more negative press, more negative feelings toward the organization. And this should be an exciting time. This is something the Bengals fans have wanted for a long time. So hopefully the ship writes. Hopefully that excitement can start to build again, at least, you know, going into free agency, the combine, the draft, because there's work to be done. And they're short staffed right now already, just in terms of a small personnel department. And now they're missing the coaches as well. I'm also curious about what happened with Aubrey Pleasant, Mark Emanuel, Aaron Glenn. These are names that we heard about earlier in the week, last week, that we haven't heard about since. They apparently got permission to interview Aubrey Pleasant. We didn't hear anything confirming that interview telling us that he turned down the job. So there's something weird and nebulous happening around this defensive coordinator position, and hopefully it's wrapped up soon. Yeah, and especially with Pleasant, because Zach Taylor should be very familiar and you know, really shouldn't need much more information on him. Maybe just an introduction of Pleasant to the decision makers before that's finalized, if that was the guy he wanted. Instead, it sounds like they zeroed in on Grantham as the guy they wanted, and when they're turned down now, do you go back to the to that group of players or um, of candidates for the defensive coordinator position, and and are they still open to interviewing or coming on in, knowing they weren't the the option? I, my my gut feeling is, of course, they'd be interested. These are guys that are position coaches and looking at a rare opportunity that they may not get for who knows how long years, if not ever. And so you'd still have that opportunity to bring Pleasant in and, and offer him the job if that's the guy Taylor wants. But that's where I keep stopping because. Taylor should know if he wants Aubrey Pleasant. They did work together in Los Angeles. You'd expect, you'd expect that he'd know. Right. It's no sure thing. And uh, he could have the same concerns anybody else has is why. Because I read a few times, Aubrey Pleasant is an up-and-comer. A lot of people like him, see him as a future head coach. Okay, well, how, why hasn't anybody pulled the trigger yet? Well, that is certainly unclear. He did go to the NCAA coaching academy all those years ago. At some point, you feel like Aubrey Pleasant will come back up. I just think it's weird that we hadn't heard anything about it since we got permission, the Bengals got permission to interview him. Anyway, there's only so much we can say about the defensive coordinator search. It doesn't feel good. It inspires some pessimism. But I think the only way forward really is to just keep an open mind and, and we don't know everything. It could all work out, as Joe said. Anyway, moving on. 
Evan Silva this morning had some really interesting tweets about the way New England goes about filling out their needs and something called, he's calling pick swap trades, aka highway robberies. And he's he's highlighting that the New England Patriots have, what was it, five top yeah. 100 selections? And this is because of the way they play the compensatory pick game in a way that, you know, the Bengals talk a lot about compensatory picks, but the New England Patriots... They don't sign free agents to fill their needs. And they're, he's highlighting that they are using these pick swap trades instead. And so they're moving down and around. And they're picking up a player in a pick swap trade with another team. They're trading, let's say, you know, their second round pick for a third round pick and a player. Or a fourth round pick and a player. So they're moving down in the draft, sometimes substantially. But they're filling their need with a veteran that they otherwise would have to address in free agency. And then they do this, and then later, when they lose their free agents to other teams, as you do when you're a very successful team, they're getting compensatory picks back. So the Patriots lost four compensatory pick-worthy veteran free agents this past offseason, Evan Silva tweets, and they used pick swap trades to fill those needs for five key contributors. And they're now getting four compensatory picks, including two in the third round this year. And we talk about compensatory picks with the Bengals a lot because it affects their approach to free agency. Well, why aren't they making these trades that the Patriots are making? There are some institutional reasons, but Joe, what do you what do you think? What are your initial thoughts here? You know, it's not an angle I have considered. I mean, obviously the Patriots are masterful at acquiring talent, but I, the big thing is that they're masterful at getting the most out of that talent. Uh, but when I when I'm reading this and I go, okay. Right, they do trade back a lot. I I understand that. And then yes, they will trade picks for um, veterans or, or people that you know low run guys. Trent Brown this year was a, a simple pip, pick swap in the middle of last year's draft or towards the end of last year's draft, and ended up being their starting left tackle for the entire year. No one thought much of it at at the time, and then you look back and you say, wow, what a, you know what a great job by them acquiring a talent. Uh, and they seem to do this often as. Silva said they did it for five positions last year that ended up being key contributors to them. And I think about it from the Bengals' perspective, here, here they are this year. Where they expect to have five six-round picks. Now those six-round picks aren't worth much in terms of trade-up value. They're not worth much in terms of a roll of the dice and a late-round player other than being a roll of the dice. But that is a good opportunity also for them to use those to acquire talent. They're, the Bengals get into the rut of, well, we can't sign a free agent because we're afraid of losing out on a compensatory pick. Uh, rather than if the Patriots feel the exact same way, and most teams do, uh, then instead they'll say, well, then we'll we'll trade back from the fourth to the fifth round and give us that linebacker you're not using. Or we'll trade back 20 spots, give us that corner you're not using. Um, or we'll give up the sixth-round pick, give us that running back you're not using. And when I think of it that way, I'm like, wow, the Bengals should do this. I mean, every team should, but the Bengals should do this more often, especially for for them who don't like to go out and give guaranteed money in free agency, don't like to overspend. Yeah, they may be one-year rentals, and that's that could turn them off, and they may not be exact scheme fits, and that definitely probably turns them off with their um, small scouting staff. But if you can get them to fit your scheme, you got a veteran player that can help you for cheap, and you can get a compensatory pick the following year if he doesn't fit you and ends up getting a decent deal somewhere else. So, yeah, sometimes you need something obvious in front of your face and look at it in a different light. And I think Evan Silva of Roto World does a good job tweeting this out and explaining it. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting thing that we should bring to the attention of some Bengals fans who 
I'm sure have asked the same questions. I'm sure I'm sure you're out there. And if you've thought of this, way to go. You're you're ahead of the curve. This is really interesting stuff to think about from a team building perspective. Joe, before we get into the questions, you published an article on The Athletic. Yeah, first one in a few weeks. I had to uh, get this thing off the ground, this podcast, and also renew my contract with The Athletic. But I'm back in into the draft mode. We're going to look at linebackers next. I want to mix in a couple other guys, too, and make sure we get to them. Uh, but Devin White out of LSU, the most often mocked player to the Bengals. Linebacker, position of major need for them. He's a tremendous prospect. So I went back, watched the film, came with that conclusion. He's a great prospect. Uh, the bigger questions for me were one thing that's, that stood out on tape, and you'll have to click to see what that is. And the other thing was the value of linebacker. And I looked at the playoff teams and, see, and to see where they spent their resources at, at linebacker. And most of them were second round and some third, third round. But most of them were day two selections for teams uh, in the playoffs this year. And it brings up the question where we still are of what is the value of taking an off the ball linebacker at 11, but really you're clicking on because there's like an eight minute video, two videos together um, to show this one trait that kind of concerned me and shows the difference of when Devin white is really good. And when Devin white can get lost a little bit, go check out Joe's work at the athletic to get an in-depth look at Devin white. We'll be back after the break to start taking your questions from this week in the weekend mailbag. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Bengals Podcast. It's time to take your questions. The first one, I think Joe has gotten a lot of questions about this. We're talking about defensive coordinator. Dan Orlovsky even tweeted about it. Why aren't the Bengals looking at Rex Ryan? There's a bit of a circus that comes to town with Rex Ryan. Joe, what else do you have to say about Rex Ryan as a defensive coordinator? Yeah, besides the attention he draws when he does go to a new city, um, I think he hasn't had as much success lately with Buffalo those last couple of years with the Jets. Uh, largely that's due to his schemes are considered to be overcomplicated. Where, and I remember Preston Brown talking about this after he left and went to Cincinnati and, and other players have talked about it, that they'll have things built in. And now this seems, seems very good on the surface, what I'm about to say. They'll have things built in for, all right, if this guy goes into motion, if we think they're running um, um, a crossing route, if we think they're do, they're, they're going to um, try and throw a screen pass, whatever. Like They have something built in for whatever they believe the offense is going to do. And it requires them to all have communication and everyone to know everyone's responsibility and to use it effectively. And and that's like most of their defensive playbook where if funny Dan Orlovsky brings this up because he showed during the playoffs how the Colts will do this also, but they'll only do it in certain packages and with certain players. Uh, and that's, you know, was a huge advantage for their defense this year where the, the, the Jets and the Bills will try and do it and have everyone be flexible and have everyone high-level intelligence and understanding of what's going on. And I just think it's very hard to do that in today's NFL with limited practice time. Uh, and with everyone becoming more specialized in their position and in their role, it's hard to 
have them play more positions and more roles, even though some guys are, are perfectly tuned to do that. You got to have those guys on your roster. So I think with Rex Ryan, some people shy away from that, uh, and because of his character or his his, his loud voice, um, people may um, back off away away from him a little bit more. But at this point, it's fair to bring it up, and the only reason I think we're we're bringing it up is because we are at this point of desperation. And he does have a job as an analyst right now, right? So you'd have to pull him away yep. there. You'd have to pay him, and you hear Marvin Lewis. Again, not to keep harping on Marvin Lewis, but you'd hear him often say, we want to just have our players on our defense do their job and trust the guy next to them. And I think that that is a pretty popular trend around the league where, you know, you know your job. Maybe you know the jobs of the guys next to you, but you're not tasked with knowing the job of everybody on the defense. And then it makes your it makes it easier for you to focus on what you need to do on the defensive side of the ball. And I think it's what gave them a lot of success, the Jets, I'm speaking, against the Patriots. Because mixing that pre-snap, post-snap stuff and not really identifying that this is man coverage just because a linebacker is going out with this tight end or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so that that really messed up Tom Brady, and that can have a lot of success. I also think at the same time, if you don't trust the other guys on your team to do that responsibility or to hold that down and you start getting hit with injuries and new guys getting plugged in, I think that's when that defense crumbles really quickly. And when I think of it that way, it's pretty scary. Moving on to the next question. Uh, at House Sacco, I don't have a name for you, but you asked us to talk about if Kyler Murray is in the Russell Wilson Baker Mayfield class, and you're not saying that he is. Would that what would that be for the Bengals organization? How much pressure would that alleviate? And I think um, the comparison with the question of Russell Mur- uh, Russell Wilson and, and Baker Mayfield compared to Kyler Murray uh, is coming from because I think a lot of people are going to use Russell Wilson as the comparison for Murray. That's mostly because of size, and I think due to size, they're going to look very similar on tape a lot of times because, you know, your your size has a big effect on how you play. And and with Murray being a shorter guy and former baseball player, just the same way Russell Wilson was, they have the same ability to throw off platform at different angles, and they have cannon arms. So uh, they look very similar a lot of times. Uh, on the other hand, Baker Mayfield coming from the same scheme, considered a shorter guy also, even though he's over six foot. I think scheme-wise, you can see and get a direct comparison of how Baker Mayfield ran the Oklahoma offense and how Kyler Murray ran it. And you see some similarities and obviously some differences. I think the question also, the second part of this, is um, how much pressure does that alleviate from the Bengals if he is one of those guys? I think that's what he means. And if it, if that's the case, well, it alleviates a lot of pressure. If you end up getting a, a young quarterback that you believe can – not only be a franchise guy, because the Bengals have that in Andy Dalton, but you believe he can carry your offense into a whole nother stratosphere, that takes away a lot of pressure. And now you're like, well, we don't have to fill right tackle, or we you want to fill these holes, but when you have Andy Dalton, you feel we gotta have premium talent around him. You feel you gotta secure every offensive line position. Whereas when you get to that other quarterback, that other level of quarterback, you feel more confident in saying, okay. Maybe we can invest this draft pick on the linebacker instead or on a defensive tackle or wherever you want to spend your resources because you feel the quarterback can make up for some of that on offense. Um, and if Kyler Murray does become one of those guys, then we'll wish the Bengals would have taken him. And that's kind of how Seattle's gone about building their team. You look at the Seattle offensive line with Russell Wilson over the years, and it's mostly not been very good, especially when Russell Okung wasn't around. 
Next question from Adam at Oregon Bengals fan. Do we think the Bengals new coaching staff will try Hopkins at center price at right guard? What's along those same lines? This wasn't in the question, but what does that mean for Christian Westerman? And we don't know. Uh, but I hope that my, my personal hope is that the coaches come in, they see the tape, they see these guys in practice, and they realize, okay, this is what we got here, here, and here. The other thing with Billy Price is, in my opinion, a lot of times for centers, it takes a year. So maybe he does have a leap in his second year. That being said, if Hopkins is already better, Price can probably take that leap at right guard. Joe, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I thought Price was a better right guard in college. Uh, so that that should be not only just a smooth transition, a, a potential to make him even better. I, my hope is that fresh eyes come in with fresh expectations for these players. And um, I thought that could be the case last year. And then as some players weren't playing and I dug in and asked some questions, I was told that's kind of a Marvin Lewis thing. So with him out of the out of the room... Maybe they won't put the emphasis, and this is going to sound weird to some people. The Bengals put an emphasis on character lately. <laughs> I mean, not always through Marvin Lewis era, but lately a character showing up, doing the right thing, fixing the things we need you to fix, correcting the things we need you to correct, being a team player. And I think Bobby Hart and uh, Alex Redman fit that bill. And they, they did this with Billy Price also. It was one of the things they talked about extensively when drafting him and why they took him over an upside guy with that showed much more talent in, in uh, James Daniels who went in the second round. Uh, they wanted the guy who they felt was going to display all the things that they could use as, as an example. So they use these guys as an example of, look, you can be an undrafted um, right guard and we'll find a spot for you. If you work your ass off, you do the right things, show the right things and, and give it your all um, and follow coaching. We you'll play. And, that's kind of the opposite of why Christian Westerman wasn't playing because he wasn't correcting the things they asked because he wasn't the same type of rah-rah happy guy that's going to come in and do all the work and, and be the first one in, last one out, that cliche thing that Alex Redmond was. So hopefully a new staff comes in, and why you should value the character and should you value those guys to show as, as an example to everyone else of, look, hard work pays off in this team. You also hope it's a, it's a fair competition on the field and in practice of show us what you can do to make our team better and you'll play. And if that's the case, then I do believe we could see someone moving positions in terms of Billy Price or maybe Christian Christian Westerman gets an actual chance to start and play an extended amount of time. And those worries that the last coaching staff had of him making mistakes, let's see for an extended period. He's played 180 snaps now going into year four. That's not enough at all and not for what he's shown. And I think we all collectively hope he gets a chance to play. I think we all are with you on the whole idea of let's get fresh looks at these guys and put the best players on the field based on what we see in practice, what we see on tape. Last question before the break. TRL at CNatty87 asks about AJ Green and Tyler Boyd, who are both free agents after 2020. Uh, are we going to extend one, both? What might those extensions look like? We talked a little bit about your feelings about whether AJ should come back if there's a new quarterback this week. And your feeling is you want him there to ease that guy in, to help that guy get acclimated to the NFL, to be that veteran leader. And and I'm, I love AJ Green, I said then. And if they do re-sign him, there's not much precedent around the NFL for players, for receivers taking a third contract. The only one that's still really going that I could find that's 
up around A.J. Green's level of production is Larry Fitzgerald, who spent his entire career with one team in Arizona. Since he's turned 30, Larry Fitzgerald has averaged about $11.5 million per year on his deal. A.J. Green is currently making $15 million on his deal. There, like I said, there aren't very many comparables at that point in time. A lot of guys that get this late into their careers are starting to take one-year deals. They're getting traded. They're taking two-year deals here or there, trying to chase a ring. If AJ is going to stay in Cincinnati, he probably will be looking at a pay cut. He'll probably be looking at a shorter-term deal. Unless the team feels really good that he's going to be able to play at a high level until he's 34, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about extending him for multiple years at this point. So I think the Bengals are probably looking at it as, well, we'll give you a Larry Fitzgerald kind of contract. Maybe it's three years, averaging $12 million. Joe, anything to add? Yeah, and that's why I said that on the last podcast when we brought this up, that it's going to have to be an understanding between the organization and a franchise player that you really value of, we want you here. Uh, We think you can help. We think you're a productive receiver still. We think you can continue to be a productive receiver late into your 30s. But at the same time, we have to sign Tyler Boyd at this point based on what he has shown. And history shows that we cannot guarantee you and offer you, you know, what you're being paid right now. And it's going to have to be at a reduced salary. And you're going to have to understand that your role may also be reduced with the team. Uh, Because of it, I think that means you could potentially lose him. We could be looking at the end of A.J. Green. If he feels he can get another deal out there that's worth more and and with a a bigger role, yeah, this could be the end of the A.J. Green era. But at the same time, I think with Green's character and what he has said publicly, there's a potential this could happen and get worked out. And then you have the question of how do you manage the cap if you're paying two receivers over $10 million each? And I think that's what you're looking at for Tyler Boyd as well. If you were, and it kind of depends on a couple of things. It depends on if they try to extend him. Can they extend him this year, or do they have to wait uh, yeah. until next year? So no, if I they, they can start now. If they can start extending him this year, maybe you get him at a slightly lower rate. Maybe Tyler Boyd bets on himself and says, "You know what? If I stay healthy for a full season, I'll put up better traditional numbers. I'll get to thirteen hundred yards, ninety catches, ten touchdowns next year." Maybe he's betting on himself, and that's putting him closer to twelve million, thirteen million a year. As it is now, his traditional stats, his yards, touchdowns, catches, puts him kind of, I think, in the $10 million annual average value range, uh, comparing him to guys like uh, Marvin Jones, Tyler Lockett. In terms of and pers- I, I was just going to say, and I don't think he'd be valued the same way those guys would because he's going to be viewed as, as a slot receiver. Uh, and now, Mar- Mohamed Sanu and Marvin Jones got similar deals, but I think most people around the league would value Marvin Jones over Muhammad Sanu. I think Boyd is probably a little bit better than Sanu, but at the same time, that should keep his value a little lower. That's true. Tyler Lockett, though, is a little guy who's seen as a situational player, and he's making over $10 million a year now in Seattle. We looked at his production, didn't we? And he had 158 quarterback rating thrown to him. He's one of the best deep threats in the league. Uh, big play guy. I think that's a big difference. That's true. That's true. That's fair. That being said, On a a per-snap basis, Tyler Boyd, according to Pro Football Focus, is a top 15 receiver in the league right now. So it depends on which way we're going. Is is the analytics going to be what's driving the contracts, or is it going to be those traditional stats? History is still kind of pointing in the way of, of traditional stats. I know agents are using PFF data to try to convince teams to pay their clients more money. 
we'll have to see where Tyler Tyler Boyd's contract ends. I think the Bengals will want to extend him. It's just a question again of can they offer him the money that's going to keep him around, or will Tyler Boyd see what happened with Marvin Jones, Muhammad Sanu, and think maybe I'll test the market? And you got to consider where are we at on the timeline of Tyler Boyd's career? Are we just now experiencing what he's going to be and what he should be for the next you know five years into his prime? Remember, he's a young player. He was 21 when drafted. Uh, or do we feel, you know, the first two years were okay and solid, and he looked like a role player for the most part. It's really last year where, for the first time, he looked special. Do you pay that right off? I mean, the value is never going to be any higher right now. I mean, Boyd can bet on himself that he stays healthy and puts up two back-to-back years. But if they're going to extend him this year, they're buying him on the high side of, you know, he could revert a little bit and play more like he did the first two years and be a little bit more of a limited player, especially without A.J. Green if Green's not there. And if that's the case, uh, you may end up overpaying Tyler Boyd. So I think there's a little bit of a unknown here and i think if i were if it were me i'd want to sign him early if i can get him cheap and if i can't then i want to wait one more year make sure i know what he is and make sure i know what john ross is because being the nine overall pick he's getting paid a decent salary if he takes another step in his development that brings up way more questions at wide receiver of what do you value who's valued more and how do you retain and can you retain all three guys? Because that's probably very unlikely. And if if Ross takes another step, Boyd puts up another year or two or another year as, as similar to last year, that makes your decision completely clear on A.J. Green. Yeah, and it is a lot of money to spend at the wide receiver position. Some interesting questions coming up there. After the break, we'll have more interesting questions. Stick around for the last bit of Mailbag Weekend on the Locked on Bengals podcast. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Bengals Podcast. It's the weekend mailbag edition. We're going to keep it moving to our next question. It comes from Al at LG's, and he asks, what Bengals on the defensive side of the ball, besides Geno, Dunlap, and William Jackson, do you see making the Pro Bowl in the next three years? Jake, I'll leave it up to you. I think there's two candidates on the roster right now. And those are Jesse Bates and Carl Lawson. You can make a long shot argument for Vontez Perfect return to form. But the two obvious answers are Jesse Bates at safety, I think, is the future star on that defense, a young guy right now. And then Carl Lawson, if he can stay healthy for a year and put together a whole year rushing the passer, he could put up some gaudy numbers. I also think for Carl Lawson, uh, if his scheme switch gets him on the field, on early downs also, he can end up accumulating even more numbers uh, because I think he right now he's probably a guy that gets 20 tackles and 50 pressures and 10 sacks a year when he's healthy. And I think that's on the cusp of, cusp of being a pro bowler, but I think he'd get more attention if, if people viewed him as an every down player, which I think is silly in today's NFL because his role and his position is going to be used a lot. But I agree definitely on Jesse Bates. Um, the only other guy that really popped into my mind 
was Andrew Billings. And I just don't think a nose tackle makes it in the future NFL. I don't think there's a role for him on on the pass rush unit unless things get really weird with whatever defensive coordinator they bring in. But I do think he's trending on the right track of being a um, very good nose tackle in the NFL at his age. And if he keeps going, um, he should be a valuable asset. Next question. Also from Al. Al, geez. What three things would you do besides coaching hires if you had your run of it for the Bengals? And there's some obvious moves that you could say they should make, like, oh, go sign Jadavion Clowney. But, Joe, maybe there's some deeper organizational changes you could look at, too. Yeah, because LG's, when he asked, he goes, if you were the one making decisions. So I didn't take that as, um, you know, making personnel decisions. I took that as, how can we make this franchise a better or in a more attractive destination or a more well-rounded football club that could compete year in and year out? And for me, I looked at um, upgrading the facilities, which include, you know, the the practice bubble and the stadium. I think there's a lot of energy that's lost there with, with different, you know, um, looks and colors and, and ring of honor, things like that. I think those do have some value. I, I would try and increase the scouting department, rely on analytics a, a little bit more. And this is from the outside. Um, we're looking at that. I sat behind a scout on a flight for the Bengals on the flight back from the senior bowl. And I kind of peeked at him while he was pulling up his computer. I don't know if this is not supposed to be um, said, but they have a lot of information on there. So even with small scouting staff, uh, they get a lot of information. But at the same time, I would increase it, make it robust, especially I think the personnel that is in charge of uh, veteran scouting and around the league scouting. I think that's where most of their fear comes in, in terms of acquiring veteran acquisitions. I think that would be bullet point number three for me, or, or number three that I would change is be more open to free agency trades, bringing people in, spending a little bit more money because today's NFL, I think the cap is growing exponentially every year. You really don't have to worry about the cap for most teams. I mean, there's probably usually every every year when you look at it, there's probably 28 teams to start the the off season that are in great cap shape uh, and can do whatever they want. And the other four teams get under it very quickly. So that's not an issue. Most of the issue is cash flow and what you need to, to put aside when you sign these guys. But I think I would make that effort because I don't think you can win or at least put your best foot forward in today's NFL without dipping into free agency and, and spending a little bit of money. I think I agree with all of those points. The personnel department, just modernization around, that's the emphasis there. That's the theme, right? Is modern NFL practices in free agency, personnel department, analytics, facilities, doing a ring of honor like these are all things that just modern nfl teams do to engage their fan base to engage their legacy to to be competitive on the football field so there's a strong theme of modernization there that for a while i kind of felt good about the bengals being a modern franchise and now i'm kind of back to the point again where i want to see them take another step yeah it seems like every few years they would take a step where you'd be like, okay, here they go, you know, and I really like the article by Jeff Hobson. I want to say it may be two years old now at this point um, where they, he said how their scouting got a reshuffle. It wasn't so much of we need to get more people in it. We need to get more information. We need to rely on the film more than sending these guys out to travel to each location and, and watch these games in person. When you can watch 10 games in that same, you know, time frame that it takes to travel, and they're relying on more of the digital age of scouting 
And for me, I, that was a, you know, I was like, oh, that's, I love this idea. I think that's, that's a great way to digest more information with less people. So anytime you get one of those, you feel good. And then you're reminded by different stories or different situations that they're still lacking in a lot of areas. Let me ask you a follow-up question on that, because you just went to the senior bowl for the first time. You've watched a lot of these guys on tape on YouTube. Do you think that you learn more from being able to see them in person? Or do you think that relying on film is, you know, is a safe way to do it? I think I would like to see um, some positions or, or premium prospects in person just to reset my barometer for what I think speed is and what I think velocity looks like from the ball and, and different things like that. But I think when I watch the tape, uh, I don't know if this is the same for everyone, but I can quickly digest if a guy is stronger than normal, faster than normal, has the right technique or whatever the case may be, whatever I'm looking for, I can um, quickly dissect that and, and, and see it just off a of tape. I, I think uh, looking at them in person, sometimes the benefit is just getting an, an accurate feel for that. Okay, this guy's velocity is looks a little bit stronger in person than it does, uh, you know, on tape. When I'm watching it, I'm maybe getting 30 frames per second on, on my computer and on the screen, but in real life, you're seeing it much clearer and quicker and, and and digesting it, you know, internally much much cleaner. So there is some of that. I also think scouts go to these things and go to universities because that was the best way to get tape back in the day that was how you you went there you you spoke with the with their um director uh you know in that position and would you could watch film with them you could talk to these players you can talk to coaches it gave you a more um you know access or quicker access better access to all of that stuff and it made sense but i think now with the way tape is i mean we even get as as internet guys we get access to all 22 now and that wasn't always the case, and 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 so I assume teams have it delivered to them the the very next Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, Wednesday or whatever it is, right into their computer database, and they're on it quickly. So traveling now is probably less of a priority. And the other thing is, after you watch all those guys on tape, you can do your private workouts. You get the combine. You do still get a chance to see these guys in person, and for those things you're talking about, like the speed. Uh, the the ball velocity, some of those factors you can see at the combine, you can see in those private workouts at the pro days. So, yeah, yeah, I, I can buy it. I can buy that argument from two years ago. A couple more questions here. Uh, Natty Wayne, Matt, at Natty Wayne asks, what type of effect do you think the recent rejection by defensive coordinator candidates has on our own pending free agents or free agents that we hope to entertain? That's a harder question because uh, we're going to, you know, from the outside perspective, I think timing wise, that's the biggest impact because a defensive coordinator is going to have to come in and say, and it is, let's say he comes in the next week and he's going to have to digest all of all of these players and the film on all of them and take information from the people around the organization that know these guys and have to decide, well, do we need a corner? You know, do we need Derek Denard, let's say, or can Darius Phillips step in or is Denard worth what? is currently being negotiated or offered. Does he fit my scheme? I mean, you have to do this with almost every single player. It becomes a complete reset when a new coordinator comes in of how can I use this guy? Do I need this guy? Is he worth what he's getting paid or, or potentially paid? I also think on the other hand is now once you're done with that, it may take some time. Free agency may be right on your lap right as you're done with that. And now you have to, for the Bengals organization that has a smaller scouting staff, they rely on their coaches to do a lot of this work or at least some of this work. 
to make sure they're a fit in their scheme, you are now diving right into now free agents and saying, okay, now who is out there that may fit me? And obviously you're going to be behind the schedule and doing any of that. I don't think the turning down the offers is the problem. I think it's that we now are still searching and it's, you know, February 14th, 15th, 16th, whenever you're listening to this, and we still don't have somebody in there that can get the process started right away. And at this point, you have to hope they close the deal quickly because, there, like you said, there's a lot of work to do in terms of evaluating the roster, evaluating what you think the needs are, and hopefully most of the guys are considering to come in for the defensive coordinator position have an idea of who's available on the market, and it wouldn't take them too long to evaluate that, especially because you do have an NFL scouting staff behind you. But some of these guys are looking at are coming from the college ranks, and maybe they're not paying as much attention to who those free agents are. So there is a learning curve, and the Bengals are certainly behind it at this point, just being this late into the year already. And again, we can't forget that the scouting combine in two weeks is going to take up a week of their time where you need that guy there to interview, talk to players, watch these guys firsthand, digest that information. I mean, we're you're supposed to be using this time now to really get a handle on not only upcoming free agents, but these draft prospects. And instead, we're going to bring a guy in and all these teams that are bringing in new coordinators are going to do this. But they had the whole month of January to do this. And now the Bengals are just going to get to the point where they're evaluating their own staff or their own personnel. Yeah. So we want to leave you on a positive note. This has been a long Locked on Bengals podcast. We've got some great questions from you this week. The last question we'll take is from David at MD Leslie. He asks, what is there for fans to be optimistic right now? Everything feels really dreary. What are we feeling good about? I'm feeling good about a lot of things still. I mean, when you step back and you still look at it, what were the things we wanted to accomplish moving on from Marvin Lewis? We wanted a young, exciting, offensive guy to take over. I think a lot of people agreed on that, and they did do that. And uh, I think Mike Brown acknowledging that they're listening to fans, I think that's a positive. I think getting even stronger confirmation that Duke Tobin is running uh, like a GM, I think that's a op- something to be optimistic about. And then you look at the players. And there's still a lot of good, fun players from cornerstones of A.J. Green and Geno Atkins, Carlos Dunlap. I think William Jackson's still on the verge of being a star. Jesse Bates, similar. Uh, I want Carl Lawson to come back because I think he's one of the most exciting defensive players to watch. On the offensive side with Tyler Boyd and, and John Ross still excites me. Joe Mixon is a pleasure to watch, especially when they're using him. And I think... If I'm thinking of Joe Mixon in that Rams offense, I get really excited and think he can be a superstar. And if that's the case, this is a different team, and despite the issues that are currently going on. And, you know, we're upset at everything that's not football-related because there's no football to play. But when you remember, and now we're talking about a bad team that had its third straight losing season, we remember there is talent on this roster. And with the right moves, and we don't know what those right moves are, we won't know for a while, and they've already started some of them. But if they're the correct moves, this thing could be turned around very quickly. Yeah, you look at the first three weeks of the season when Tyler Eifert's healthy, when the full offense is healthy, when Andy Dalton's keeping his eyes up and making plays off script. That gives you reason to believe that there's talent on the roster. The questions are, you know, are the, are these coaches the right guys? And when we were moving on from Marvin Lewis, Joe and I agreed that we want to see somebody from outside the organization come in. This isn't Hugh Jackson. This isn't Vance Joseph, although at this point we might want Vance Joseph to be our defensive coordinator. 
These are young, fresh guys with new ideas coming from exciting pedigrees. We have three quarterback coaches in the building now, so that's exciting for the future at the most important position on the team. There's a lot of unknown, and it's fair to be scared, but there's a lot to be excited about too on the same on the other side of the coin, I guess. And we'll just kind of have to see how that plays out. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Lockdown Bengals Weekend Mailbag. That'll do it for us. It's been a long episode. Remember to get those questions in next week, and we'll be back on Monday to review whatever happens between now and then. And we'll get into some more draft prospects. We'll see you next week. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.